Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, he was a legend in snowboarding, a pioneer who won world championships before quitting to free ride and become a trained mountain guide. Washington State's Craig Kelly was just 36 when he was killed in an avalanche near Revelstoke, BC in January of 2003. Now, New York Times bestselling author Eric Blem, who knew Kelly and had written about him in the past, looks into his life, his legacy, and the controversy surrounding how he and six others were killed in his new book, The Darkest White, A Mountain Legend and the Avalanche That Took Him. He is one of Canada's most noted and appreciated singers and songwriters, first with Great Big C and now solo. Alan Doyle has just released his 20th album, what he calls more intimate than usual, more whisper than scream, and he's with me to explain why and talk about his Canadian tour. Wendy's is getting set to roll out a new pricing system in some U.S. restaurants as early as next year. It's called dynamic pricing or surge pricing. You may be familiar with it if you've ever taken an Uber, for instance. It's the practice of setting flexible prices for products and services. It means the price paid by us can fluctuate based on market demand. So how would it work for burgers or fries? Is there any benefit to us, the customer? And how likely is it that others will soon follow suit? But first, at 19, Canadian Hallie Clark is now the youngest skeleton world champion ever, winning that title in Germany last week as she hurtled down an icy track at speeds as high as 130 kilometers an hour, grabbing gold just five years after stumbling into the sport. She joins me to talk about mastering one of the most dangerous and dynamic sports of all. Skeleton or skeleton sledding is where an individual plummets headfirst down a steep, treacherous ice track, usually the same one used for bobsledding, but on a tiny, tiny sled. Riders with their faces just inches above the course, the ice hit speeds as high as 140 kilometers an hour. Unlike bobsledding, a skeleton sled has no steering mechanism. It's just a metal frame covered with carbon fiber with runners. To change direction, athletes have to shift their bodies with their knees and shoulders just ever so slightly, altering the center of gravity and flexing the board slightly. It is a terrifying looking sport. I don't know if you've seen it at the Olympics, obviously. Now, I didn't know this, but sledding itself is considered the world's first sliding sport. Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? And was pioneered back uh, in the Swiss Alps resort of St. Moritz back in the late 19th century, at least what we now would presume to be skeleton sledding, right? It actually made its Olympic debut in the same St. Moritz in 1928 and in 1948 before it's kind of disappearing and being reintroduced for men and women at the 2002 Winter Olympics in Salt Lake City. Now, according to a New York Times article I was looking at, corners are where skeleton racing is the most physically brutal. A tight turn can produce G-forces of up to five times normal. For perspective, it says, consider that astronauts lifting off on a rocket experience only about three G-forces. So you can tell just what kind of what kind of things out there are weighing on the body. So take all of that into consideration and imagine being at the top of your sport at just 19 years old. Well, that's exactly where Canada's Holly Clark finds herself today. Last Friday, the Brighton, Ontario natives captured the women's gold at the World Cup in Winterburg, Germany, and became the youngest person ever to claim the world title in that event. Here's how the victory sounded on the CBC broadcast of that event. Gold for Holly Clark, silver for Belgium's Kim Marmons, Anna and for Hannah Nyser. And Haley Clark is the new world champion. And Nyser only two hundreds ahead of Tabby Sturker. Oh my goodness! 
Oh my goodness, 19 years old. Candidate Ali Clark, 10th on her debut in San Moritz, gold medal here. Imagine, that was the same track where Clark had took the World Junior Championships just a year ago. She saved the best for last, completing her fourth and final run in 56.93 seconds, the only competitor to break the 57-second barrier in the competition. It's been a remarkable ascent in a sport all about descending at breakneck speeds just five years after she took up skeleton on a whim after seeing a learn to push sign at calgary's windsport arena home to the bobsleigh luge luge and skeleton track part of canada's olympic park in calgary of course and it's my great pleasure to welcome world champion hallie clark to the show now hallie thank you congratulations oh thank you so much excited to talk to you yeah you must i mean i i would get the feeling you must still be just absorbing everything that happened because it what a big moment that was yeah i uh, i definitely am you know when something like that that you've dreamed about for so long comes true it just it really takes a minute in order to sink in because it's it still feels like a dream yeah what was that last run like because it, it was it was fantastic and plus once you got up uh you know i've never done skeleton before because it looks terrifying. But wow, just the excitement in your family and in the crowd and then your the other competitors hugged you. Like it was just such a magical, magical moment. It really was. And it was so special to have uh, my mom there because she's, she's been with me through all of it. My whole family's been so supportive. So to see her when I you know, got off my sled and I looked over and she was crying and then I started to cry because, <laughs> you know, you just can't hold it together at that point. No. Um, and then, oh, it was so special sharing it with, with her and with my teammates and fellow competitors. You know, you spend so much time with with each other to be able to, you know, celebrate with them was, was really special. I guess in any sport where you're racing the clock and you're waiting to see who the final competitor is, there is that moment you're, where you're kind of watching your competitor come down, hoping they don't, they don't do quite as well as you did. But at the same time, I, I guess you don't want to, well, I don't know how, do you, do you sort of, do you sort of watch intently? What's that? What was that last couple of minutes like? Uh, it's honestly sometimes more nerve wracking than actually going down yourself because you have no control over over how they do, and you never hope that they do bad. Um, you know, I'm friends with Hannah, and watching her come down, you know, I hope for the best for her as well. Um, so it's it's definitely nerve wracking watching and and just waiting as you see the time go, and sometimes it gets so close that people are are winning or losing by hundreds of seconds so it's it's exciting yeah it's like a blink of an eye right the difference between gold and and bronze is is like the snap of the fingers yeah it's yeah our sport it's real tight tight racing but it's also really exciting because of that no kidding tell me about that last run the the winning run what was that did you just sort of say i'm just going to leave it all out here and and do everything i possibly can did you adjust it all or did you just stick with what you're supposed to what you've always been doing uh, I stuck with what I had done uh, for the first three runs and and just told myself, you know, I know what to do. I've I've done it three times already in this race um, and just reminded myself to have fun because it was I had the time of my life uh, during that race. You know, I didn't go into it expecting any of this, um, but I I had so much fun. And I really do think that that is why I did as well as I did. Youngest world champion. Uh, that, that must be, I mean, I guess you would have known, did you know that going in? Uh, no, no, (laughs) I didn't find that out until, until after, um, our sport typically is, uh, a bit of an older sport in terms of like competitors age. Uh, so it was something that, you know, 
I kind of wondered, oh, I wonder how, you know, how old the the youngest one was, but it, and I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess I think it's that's because it's a it's such a it is an individual sport. It's about strength and patience and there's all kinds of things that go into it which 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 would need necessitate a certain amount of combination of mental strength and physical strength, right? Yeah, it's I sometimes say that our sport is like ninety percent mental because what you're doing is like inherently dangerous. Um so to do that, to keep focus for a minute but you have such high adrenaline going and it's yeah there's definitely a lot of physical aspect to it but a lot of it really is mental and trying to keep yourself in it yeah and you haven't been doing this for, for that long there's a really nice story about how you got started because it's one of those magical how does someone discover a sport <laughs> moments right yeah i until 2018 when my family had moved to calgary i i had never even heard of the sport um so it's <laughs> one of those i just happened to find it like it wasn't something I searched for or um, was brought to me I just I just happened to walk by a sign that said learn to push and I thought it sounded super Canadian <laughs> like sliding head first down an ice track like sure why not? That's true because, of course, for for listeners who don't know, I mean, your your bio always says sort of born in Belleville, raised in Brighton, Brighton based. But you've lived in many places over the years. Your parents are both obviously uh, very athletic as well. But you've lived in a lot of spots, and and I guess athletic athlete was it athletics that brought you to Calgary? Um, no, no, it was actually um, my mom's job. She's a power skating instructor, right. so she was working in in Calgary. Right, so you were right. You were right there on on the front line. What was it? I, I I hear your first run because listen, let's be honest. I was talking about this last week with the organizer of the Invictus Games, which is taking place next year in 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 Whistler, and we were talking about how neither of us would ever have would ever have the courage to to do skeleton <laughs> ever under any circumstances. And I hear hear that first run w was was a bit of a a wake up as well. It's it's a scary sport. <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, I, my poor parents, sometimes I crashed in my very first run ever. And you don't go from the top when you first start. Right. Um, so they send you from like halfway down the track and I happen to flip out of a corner and lose a sled. And I have a video of it um, because my parents were there watching and I ended right in front of my dad. Um, and <laughs> I had no idea what happened. And, you know, parents they they were like we support you no matter what you decide but like maybe let's go home for the night and think about it um and i was yeah. like no, if i don't get up and i don't do this again i'm never going to and i think that you know i'm really grateful for that stubbornness that i had at 14 yeah. <laughs> uh, cause of this. but yeah it was i'm sure your parents were thinking why don't you take up skating or something something a little less dangerous <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I grew up figure skating and, right. you know, my mom was a figure skater, dad is a hockey player. So they get sports, but this is nothing like our family had seen. No, and on that winning run. I mean, for listeners who don't know, I think as you cross the finish line, I think you were going 130 kilometers an hour. Is that not right? Yes, I was. I was. I can't even imagine what it's like to go that fast on that on a sled face first. Yeah. And that's not even the fastest that we go. At some tracks, you get up to 140 kilometers an hour. What's that like? I mean, I, I guess it's hard to explain because that's what you do. But what's it, just the sheer speed of that and the fact that you've got, I mean, you're pretty much just there, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, it takes a bit when you first start to really learn, um, you know, how to get your timing because things come at you so quick and you're not used to it. 
so figuring out the steers, because if you steer at the wrong moment, you can make it worse. And then that's that's how you crash. Um, but the more you do it, oddly enough, the slower it gets. So when I'm on the sled, you know, that number 130 or 140 kilometers an hour sounds wild. But when you're actually on it, it doesn't feel like it goes that fast. You feel like you're on the sled for longer than that minute that you're actually on it. Holly Clark is the world's youngest ever women's skeleton world champion. She won uh, that race, or she won that title in uh, Winterberg in Germany last week. It was a momentous race for the 19-year-old from Brighton, Ontario, but from many different parts in between, including now uh, Calgary, where she's both studied and, uh, I guess, finished school and is still working uh, Is still working on her athletics ahead of the Olympics. Uh, interestingly enough, and this is part of a, a big part of your story too is that you went and raced for the u.s for a little while you've come back to canada we've done a lot of stories on this show over the past year just about respect in sport and and making sure that who you're racing for kind of aligns with your attitude about the sport you're in and it struck me that it made uh, it was very important for you especially with your former coach there or your current coach who's been your coach i think from the get-go uh just about dialogue and respect and being in a position not only where you can compete to win but also compete to feel comfortable about what you're doing yeah, you know, when when I had left, uh, it was the right decision at, at the time, given everything going on um, with our federation. But coming back, my coach, Joe Cicchini, was definitely a really big part in that decision. Um, you know, I've worked so well with him over the years, and he's been my coach since, you know, he was the first person that sent me down a track. Um, oh, was he there? Before. Was he there on the first day when you crashed? Was yeah, him? yeah, he was <laughs> wow. the one that sent me down. <laughs> Um, and so working with him for so long, you know, it, you establish a certain amount of, uh, respect and communication that just, it works. And I think working with him is when I'm at my best. So it was, it made the decision a lot easier, you know, to come back. Yeah, well, it's great to have you back. Obviously, as a as a Canadian, it's great to have you back in in, in the fold and wearing the maple leaf again. And and I guess it really does. I mean, it speaks to uh, something about sport that I think was ignored for a really long time, which is that dialogue and respect is really important to success. Yeah, it is. Um, and you know, the certain amount of of comfort that goes along with that. It's high level sport is stressful enough. You don't want um, other factors. You know, trying to take your your focus away from what you're supposed to do so you know i'm really lucky to to be able to work with a great uh team of coaches and teammates that make that really easy yeah i, I guess now i mean we're still we're still a little ways away but uh but i guess all eyes now are on milano cortina right yeah yeah that's uh that's my next goal is trying to qualify uh for for the games i was an alternate uh for 2022 so i'm really hoping that that i can make it for 26 Right. And and what now? What happens once you're world champion? Forgive my ignorance of this, but once you're world champion, what is the season done or are you still racing? What what happens in the next little bit? Uh, no, so we still actually have a month left of ah. uh, our season. Um, so we head to Lake Placid in about a week for the next World Cup. And then there's a training week in Whistler with the, the rest of our team. And then we're done for the season and don't get going again until next October. Well, Whistler's a fast track, right? I think you, I think I saw that mentioned at one point. Yeah, yeah, that's the one where uh, where people hit 140 kilometers an hour. Yeah. Well, are you still? I was reading your bio. Are you still playing the ukulele? Do you still do things outside of all this for fun? Is that late to to relax? Yeah. I do. Yes, I do. Um, I find less and less time when you're trying to go to school and train full time. But um, 
yeah, I still do. I still enjoy some ukulele and, and hang out with friends and making sure I get outside. I get to see my dogs this week for the first time in a long time. So that's right. You've been, because you, you've been, this is obvious. A lot of this happens in Europe. So you've kind of been on the road for a while. Yeah, I was back around the holidays for two weeks, but, um, you know, the second half of the season, I had been gone in Europe for two months straight. So it was a long time. Yeah. Well, Holly, it's fantastic. Congratulations on such an incredible achievement and uh, all the best, all the best with, uh, with, 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 with all that lies ahead. Yes. Thank you so much. It certainly is a big bun. It's a very big bun. Big fluffy bun. It's a very big fluffy bun. Where's the beef? Some hamburger places give you a lot less beef on a lot of bun. Where's the beef? At Wendy's, we serve a hamburger we modestly call a single. And Wendy's single has more beef than the Whopper or Big Mac. At Wendy's, you get more beef and less bun. Hey, where's the beef? I don't think there's anybody back there. You want something better. You're Wendy's kind of people. Ah, you remember that one back from 1984? Who does it if you were around for that one? Well, fast forward 40 years, and some consumers may have a beef with a new pricing system that Wendy's will be rolling out in some U.S. restaurants as early as next year. It's called dynamic pricing or surge pricing, the practice of setting flexible prices for products and services. It means the price paid by us can fluctuate based on market demand. Uber is one of those companies that employs dynamic pricing. When it's busy, the price of your ride goes up. When it's not so busy, it goes back down. Well, Wendy's is planning to roll out dynamic pricing for its fast food offering starting again as early as next year. And the chain will be testing this new pricing system in some U.S. restaurants, Wendy's said in a statement. Surge pricing is a strategy being used by ticket sellers and ride-sharing companies. It's relatively new in the world of fast food. Wendy's will test fluctuating menu prices throughout the day based on demand. Demand for a Baconator or a Frosty goes up, so does the price. Wendy's CEO says they also plan to add AI-enabled menu changes, suggestive selling, and invest about $20 million to launch digital menu boards at all of its company-run restaurants by the end of next year. I'm Ed Donahue. All right. There are currently no plans to introduce the system in Canada, at least not yet. But what exactly does this mean? I can understand when it's really busy and there aren't many uh, Ubers out there that the price kind of fluctuates. But how would it work in a fast food restaurant? I was thinking, what if you're waiting in line in the drive-thru, right? And the sun is out. Now, if you're 15 cars ahead and the sun's shining brightly and it's warm, does your frosty cost more than if it clouds over and starts raining to someone someone behind you orders one? I mean, it just seems to make not a whole lot of sense in that, in that sense, to be honest. Um, but it certainly got a lot of attention today because, I mean, listen, what this is, is this is an industry taking advantage of advances in digital technology so that their prices no longer have to be static, right? Think about it that way. Um, they can manipulate their prices. There's obviously a lot of artificial intelligence being used in all of this. Uh, so they can kind of keep their eyes on the landscape. They have something like 6,000 restaurants across North America, and they can kind of figure out when things are moving up and down. Now, what I was curious about is what does this mean? Does this mean you're going to pay like an extra buck 50 for a burger at dinner and you wouldn't have to pay nearly as much if you went at like, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon? Because I can't imagine any consumers would be too happy 
being subjected to that. And to top it all off, as we all know, when it comes to things like gas prices, once one company does it, don't they all do it? So is this the future now? Are we going to be subjected to surge pricing every time we go to a fast food place? Or maybe it'll go beyond that. I wanted to find out the answer to some of those questions, because when you just see surge pricing, the first thing that comes to mind is, oh, well, you know, if you go in at the end of, say, when the pubs close and you go over to the local Wendy's, are all the prices going to be like four bucks higher, right? Because that would make some sort of sense, wouldn't it? Um, but apparently it's not quite that drastic. So we thought we'd get an expert's opinion on this. Robert Carter is a restaurant industry analyst. He's also managing partner at Stratton Hunter Group, and he's looked into this for us. Robert, thanks for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. Well, this has gotten people talking, hasn't it? <laughs> It, it it definitely has this, this surge pricing that uh, Wendy's is talking about testing in the U.S. and uh, it's uh, got it's got a lot of people worked up. That's for sure. How I mean, I understand having you know taken ride sharing over the years, and and maybe if you follow, if you're looking to buy a plane ticket, you can kind of tell how this all works. But just to break it down, how would it work in a fast food context? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And yes, exactly. Consumers are familiar with the surge pricing through other industries, ride sharing being the most notable. But, you know, when you when you look at the dynamics of surge pricing and you look at how menu pricing across restaurants works, it's surprising that it hasn't come sooner. Right. <laughs> and, you know, in the industry, we've had lots of conversations about surge pricing or, or you know, flexible pricing strategies. And the reality is that it has existed in this industry in many formats. So, you know, as an example, a restaurant chain like a McDonald's or a Wendy's, they will have multiple tiered pricing strategies right across their entire store network, depending on what areas of the country they are in and based on geographical areas. And then they'll also have pricing based on various day parts as well. So some of their breakfast prices may be different in the morning versus in the afternoon. So it has existed in formats like, like that. But well, I think what we're talking about here is more of a dynamic where we'll see fluctuating changes in a much shorter period of time through a digital strategy. Right. So in other words, they have these digital menus, which they can update very quickly, which I suppose is convenient. At the same time, uh, you know, the, the idea, I mean, here's what I think the average consumer of someone like me would be thinking about is, you know, you're, you're waiting in the in the drive through and uh, the sun's out. So a Frosty is 475 and then it clouds over and starts raining. Presumably the pro Frosty would be cheaper. Right. I mean, that's that's sort of how you <laughs> think it. Think of it as someone who doesn't really who's thinking, how is this going to work? Yeah, exactly. I, I don't think it's going to be as that uh, black and white. I think what we'll see is dynamic pricing changes that are, are literally in the pennies. So if you think of Wendy's as an example, they have over 6,000 restaurants that if they had the ability for all their digital menus to be connected. You know, I think there'll be a shift in a slight, you know, price uh, change, which would be, you know, five cents or 10 cents in different areas at different times, depending on the traffic flow and whatnot of the, the uh, customer traffic in the store. So I don't think it's going to be what I hear a lot of consumers, you know, expressing concern about where you walk in and it's $5 and then while you're in line, it's $6. Right. <laughs> so I don't, I don't think it's going to be that dynamic. I think it's going to be very subtle. It's going to be very, um, you know, small amounts. I don't think it's going to be very noticeable. 
Right. I mean, I think if you think about, I guess, dynamic pricing, happy hour is a dynamic price in a restaurant situation, right? If you order order something at 5.30 and order at 6.05, it's going to be a different price. (laughs) Yeah. The other example is limited time offers. You know, a lot of restaurant chains will put a menu item out and they'll have a, you know, introductory price. And for, you know, two months, it'll be four bucks. And then it becomes a popular menu item, hits the main menu and then becomes six dollars. So from the retailer's point of view or the restaurant's point of view, uh, where is the benefit here? I mean, wh- where is the benefit to them? And, and then how do you sell that to consumers so they're not, they don't all freak out? Yeah, for sure. No, the benefits, you know, the restaurant industry is a game of, of uh, pennies at right. the end of the day. You know, the margins are so thin. We were all familiar with the cost inputs going up from labor to uh, food costs to rent, you name it. So, you know, there's a lot of pressure on the, the restaurateur in terms of their pricing strategies. But pricing strategy and the ability to really understand and focus and create a a dynamic pricing strategy has been in the restaurant industry very static you know you've got printed menus and you've got your menus on your board so not a lot of opportunity to change that menu uh pricing so you know menu prices will change what maybe one or two times a year if that now with the technology and the ability to implement, you know, quicker changes, that's what's really helping drive this is the tools available to do it. But at the end of the day, you know, again, if you take the Wendy's example, you have 6,000 units and, and you're able to adjust the price by mere pennies at various points in time. At the end of the year, if you add up all those slight changes in the various pricing strategies, that's going to translate into millions and millions of dollars. Uh, in, in increased revenue overall. So it's just, it's a strategic opportunity to change a pricing strategy that's been really static and, and not much change in, you know, the history of the restaurants. Right. Well, you're right. In the history of of, of, of fast food restaurant, for instance, <laughs> the prices just don't are not dynamic, right? No, exactly. And so, you know, a lot of the times, you know, the pricing could be, it could be out of whack. You know, there's pricing, they may be, leave, what we say, leaving money on the table because they're they're not charging what they should be charging for a product offering or if something's very popular, you know, they had an opportunity to charge a higher price. So this is really going to allow a lot more real-time decision-making that's going to re- translate into to higher profitability. Right. And I guess in this case, because it can be tr- switched so fast from the menu to the register, to the takeout, to the self-service, it can all be changed at the same time. I'm trying to figure out, is there some big master control where someone's going to sit there <laughs> thinking, oh yeah, you know, um, uh, you know, a, a double bacon with cheese is it going to be an extra five cents in Albuquerque? Like, that's not how it's going to work, right? It's all it's all done. It's all automated, I presume. Yeah, exactly. That that master controller is going to be the uh, artificial intelligence engine right. that's going to drive this at the end of the day, because you know the nuances of small price fluctuations in different areas is really going to be driven by data insights and AI tools that are going to identify the opportunities to increase prices at various points. So so it's it's not going to be a you know somebody sitting there you know pushing the buttons and changing the prices it's going to be a very data driven very fluid uh system what's in it for the consumer then because i think every consumer looks at this and thinks well if i go there when they're not uh, when I, if i go there when something is not surging when it's the opposite of uh well okay maybe i'll save a few pennies but chances are i'll probably be there when everyone else wants to be there and i'm going to end up paying a premium here how how do you sell this whole notion i see it how it makes sense for the for the restaurants how does it make sense for the consumer yeah, there's going to be all kinds of new tools 
schools, I would say that restaurateurs are going to be able to utilize that are going to benefit the consumer in many ways. So, you know, some examples may be loyalty. If you're a you know, more regular consumer, you have a loyalty program, your pricing might be a little bit different versus if you're, you know, a customer that's just coming in on a regular basis. Uh, th there will be day part shifting, so there'll be opportunities if there's slower day, uh, slower periods during the day to adjust that pricing, that's going to attract consumers, so that's going to be a better value play. There'll be opportunities where they may be looking to move different menu items or combo activities, and so there'll be adjustments in prices. So at the end of the day, I think the, the consumer is going to see greater value in a much more strategic pricing strategy than, versus just the you know one-size-fits-all that we see now. Robert Carter is a restaurant industry analyst and managing partner at Stratton Hunter Group. We're talking about an announcement that Wendy's is planning to roll out dynamic pricing for its fast food offerings uh, starting as early as next year across the U.S., or in some U.S. restaurants, I should say, not in Canada just yet. And this essentially means that, the, you know, through a digital menu structure and far more AI and so on, they can actually adjust the prices on the fly uh, based on demand. Now, that can be, I think, as consumers, we always think of that as being a bad thing, that in other words, they'll either be the same as they always are or they'll, or they'll surge at busy times. You know, all of a sudden at dinner time, your burger is a buck fifty more expensive. Robert's been saying that's not necessarily what's going to happen here. Uh, needless to say, when one gas station puts up their prices, all the rest of them do so in short order. One would assume if Wendy's is thinking about this, all the rest of them are thinking about this too. Yeah, I would agree with that 100%. So, you know, the dialogue in the industry around uh, surge pricing has been active for, for a number of years. It's just, you know, the technology and the tools just haven't caught up to that conversation. So conceptually, there's definitely been good conversations. But, you know, the, the restaurant industry historically has been late to the game from a technology standpoint, but that's really changed dramatically over the last couple of years. So, you know, as these restaurant chains become much more tech savvy and they become much more familiar with the information of AI tools and whatnot, we're going to continue to see the evolution of these types of strategies. Yeah. And, and again, I mean, I think there may be Wendy's is going to get be put under the spotlight because they seem to be the first one out of the gate, or at least this story broke before others have broken. Yes. Uh, but the first ones out of the gate tend to pay a bit of a reputational price sometimes for these things. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you're the first mover in these areas, particularly around something so incredibly sensitive as pricing and pricing strategies. You know, consumer reaction is going to be very mixed. But I think at the end of the day, you know, value, Wendy's is positioned as a value play. Uh, they've, they've done a great job. You know, this new CEO has just come in and announced some pretty uh, big changes and some investments uh, right across the whole system. So, you know, this this is a bold move and it's a, a bold statement to come out. Uh, but I think, you know, consumers are, again, they, they will benefit from this. And, and I think Wendy's will be, you know, <laughs> the first one to sort of break into this area. But this will be, I would say, five to seven years. This will be standard across the uh, the quick service uh, segment. Do you see it growing anywhere else? I mean, can we see this sort of thing happen in grocery stores? Or I mean, I think just yeah. people, are, people are really afraid of the idea of surge pricing because it's because it's unpredictable, right? And I think people yeah, exactly. are kind of put off by that. I mean, I've walked home instead of taking an Uber yeah. that was giving an extra fifteen bucks. You know, I mean, that's that's For the way sure. it works. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there, there's definitely that downside to it from a surge uh, uh, standpoint, where you know they're going to look at 
high peak times or you have a new menu item that's really popular and that's going to you know drive increased demand and you'll see price fluctuations from that standpoint but again all in all i think you know we're we're going to see uh this work in the favor of the consumer you know another great example is let's say you know you've got a menu and you've got a static pricing but yeah your input costs or some other element change the the expense ratio of that, they'll have now have the ability to adjust those prices, uh, you know, on demand versus just keeping that price static. So yeah. again, I, I think there'll be some good strategic use because at the end of the day, the, the restaurateurs want to get more people in the door. <laughs> so, you know, they're not going to create barriers to get people in the door. They're going to create opportunities. And I think this is just one of those tools that we use. Yeah, I'm just thinking we're all going to have to watch commodity markets to figure out how much the <laughs> a price of coffee will be at, at Wendy's or McDonald's the next morning, right? Oh, coffee, coffee bean prices are way up. Coffee futures are way up. You know, it's a buck, buck ninety instead of a buck fifty today. Um, Robert, I guess we'll wait and see how this all works out and how comfortable, you know, consumers don't much love change. So we'll see how this all works. Thanks so much for your yeah. time. Yeah. No, no, great. You know, the final statement I'll say is that, you know, this is really a, a strategy that's also geared towards these younger consumers, these Gen Zs. You know, if you look at this cohort, this is a cohort that's grown up on digital strategies and they're used to fluctuating prices and whatnot. So this is, you know, when he's getting ahead of this curve, this is a much more important cohort. And I think this is going to really resonate well with them. Oh, uh, now I now I now you know I know I'm old. <laughs> I know I'm old. <laughs> Robert, thanks so much. Yeah, perfect. Thank you. He is one of Canada's most noted and loved singer-songwriters. Alan Doyle is, of course, one of the founding members of Newfoundland's Great Big Sea, one of the great Canadian bands. A good friend of mine from Newfoundland used to give me their CDs all the time. I have cousins in Newfoundland. They are great. If you ever get to see them live or if you ever get to see Alan live, I highly recommend it. They got their start in St. John's more than 30 years ago. They had become one of the top-selling bands in this country over the next two decades thanks to their high-intensity take on trad tracks and much, much more. It's been sort of called folk rock, but I don't really think that does them justice at all. 11 gold albums, including four platinum, two multi-platinum, huge hits, including When I'm Up, I Can't Get Down, Ordinary Day, that great cover of R.E.M.'s uh, classic, It's the End of the World as We Know It, and Slade's Run Runaway, Consequence Free. There's a whole bunch of them. Uh, studio success aside, they are perhaps perhaps best known for their really energetic live shows. Now, the band went their separate ways after a hugely successful tour back in 2013. Some members, including Alan, had already put out solo projects, and Alan continues with his. He continues to release solo material, uh, including his first effort back in 2012 was called Boy on the Bridge. And he's 55 now, and he's out with a new solo effort called Welcome Home, it's his 20th album overall. Uh, it's more intimate than some of the ones he's released in the past, more reflections on fatherhood, his time with Great Big C. There's a fantastic uh, song on there about his time with Great Big C and just getting starting out and leaving Newfoundland and sort of going to all kinds of places across the country with that dream of playing their music. And he's even re-recorded one of the first songs he ever wrote, How Do We Get From I Say I Love You, uh, from their 1997 album, Play. He's on tour right now. He's stopping in Trail BC tomorrow night. Edmonton on Thursday, Calgary on Friday, Regina and Saskatoon on Saturday, Sunday, Winnipeg on Tuesday. If you're listening, check your local listening, check your local listings rather. And it's my great pleasure to welcome one of Canada's greats, Alan Doyle, to the show tonight. Alan, thanks so much for your time. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. I'm very grateful to be back out on the road. 
no kidding. You seem to really enjoy it. I mean, it's it's one of those things, you, you know, you talk to you talk to lots of artists and some of them love doing it. Some of them don't like doing it as much. But you've always been you've always really enjoyed getting out there and playing, playing for an audience. I mean, your music, your music is so suited for for a yeah. live event. Right. Well, my entire apprenticeship was in music, was playing for celebrations. Right. I learned to play for kitchen parties and then for you know, church services and then for garden parties and beer gardens and weddings and funerals. And, you know, there was no part of my musical apprenticeship that was, you know, in a room by myself with, you know, a sheet of paper or, a, right. you know, or a, or a teacher or anything like it was always my entire musical life has been, you know, founded in creating celebration with music. When I got a chance to do it for real, like like uh, um, you know, professionally, I mean, I jumped at it and I've never looked back. Yeah. Having that feedback from the audience, too, when you sort of get that, whatever that loop is, because I've been in concerts, I've seen you guys in concerts uh, in the past. Whenever you when you're part of that, it's it's kind of in, I don't know what it's like to be on stage, but it's indescribably magical. And it remains so, which is amazing yeah. to me. And I'm super grateful for it that all these, you know, various changes in the way people entertain themselves and the way people listen to music or consume music or whatever and television and movies and million changes even in my lifetime but people buying a seat in a concert hall hasn't changed since the 1500s you know like yeah. it's like people <laughs> yeah. still love doing that this tour i mean you're back out again you're you're i know you're you're on the west coast right now and you'll be doing sort of bc and then moving in towards alberta and the prairies over the next little while you've been to all these places before i know what's it like to sort of because you're going to get fans that come to see you and i guess one of the blessings of your of having had a a long career is that they're hoping to hear certain things not necessarily your most yeah. popular songs but every fan comes with some expectations and that must be interesting it's lucky is what I call it. It's like if you've gotten to a place in your, you know, performance career where people come through the door with a, you know, with a list of hopes that you have enough music that people have a hopeful, <laughs> a few things they hope are on the set list. You're, you're lucky. I always say, you know, every night is different. And, and that's part of it. That's part of the thrill. And if it wasn't different, sure. Why would you come? You know? And the, so the, you know, the, the goal, of course, for any performer is to make sure that no matter what's on the set list, people have the greatest night of their life. Yeah. I mean, and, and you know, I mean, I think I think in the case of with the repertoire that you have, I mean, I think I think that goes without, without saying it's funny. I interviewed, I think it was Ivan with Men Without Hats a while ago, and he was talking about the safety dance, of course, the song that he never yeah. wanted to have to write again, um, but was asked to. But he said, you know, what's funny about a song like that is that you realize after a while the song doesn't belong to you anymore. Like Ordinary Day doesn't no. belong to you anymore. I mean, Ordinary Day is a song that now belongs to all your fans and Canadians and yeah. kind of escapes escapes from you. That must be a good feeling as well. Especially if you grow up like in a traditional music culture, like I did, where there are songs that come with the birth certificate, right? Like yeah. I was just, I, I don't remember learning to sing Lukey's Boat or Eyes to Buy or whatever, you know? Just, right. And with Great Big Sea, especially, we had songs and have songs that made it into that list of songs that are just in the ether, you know, like that in Newfoundland and Labrador, especially. And and that's a, that's a pretty prestigious thing, you know, that someone might sing the old black rum in a pub yeah. in downtown St. John's or Halifax or whatever, and assume that it's a traditional song the way, you know, uh, you know, the wild Rover is, 
Of course, it isn't. Bob Hallett wrote the old Black Rom yeah. <laughs> in nineteen ninety four. I was there when he wrote it. <laughs> yeah, it was. You know, I, I was mentioning to you earlier. Uh, growing up, I was. You know, I was given given your CDs by people that I knew in Newfoundland. More than one person, by the way. It was amazing how much you had ambassadors from your home province sort of spreading the word because of course kids from Newfoundland end up, end up all over the country right they end up uh, particularly yeah. out west but they would bring your music with them and I know that you also toured the country and, and there was a lot of organic love for Great Big Sea and Alan Doyle but the fact that you had these ambassadors from back home too that yeah. was an interesting part of the success and remains so yeah it remains that way like the I call it the diaspora or the diaspora you yeah. know <laughs> Like, my joke all the time is that we've been spreading out around the country since 1949, and we're just waiting for, uh, uh, like, Rick Mercer or Brad Guju or someone to turn on the bat light, and then we'll we'll have you surrounded, you know, like, in the, and, uh, yeah, yeah, and, but, yeah, we, we, we and I have always benefited tremendously from people from home being proud of us and being sort of our, our biggest salespersons, you know, like if you want a great night out, come with me and, you know, and then they take their friends to one of my shows and they go, see, I told you it, it's a great night out. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, it's been a tremendous blessing. Uh, well, it's, there's a fella, uh, he used to run, you know, the horseshoe in Toronto. Yeah, indeed. For sure. And he, he used to say all the time, he said, you know, after a great big C, I just played there one time in early days you know, in the late 90s or mid-90s or something. And he said, you know, when a band from Edmonton plays here, all the Albertans don't come to the horseshoe. But when a band from St. John's plays here, all the Newfoundlanders come to the horseshoe. Yeah, I've, I've been. I mean, I've been in that environment. It's it is something really special. I mean, and and it and it adds a certain. Not that they wouldn't. The shows wouldn't be great on their own, but because uh, I've been in bigger venues where you've played, where it's 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 a yeah. bit it's a bit uh, you know it's overshadowed a little bit. But yeah, in a smaller venue with a lot of people from home, it's it is it is a great party. It is a great party. It's a slammer. Alan Doyle uh, is with us this hour. He, of course, is the former lead singer of Great Big C. He's now, of course, uh, had a very successful solo career. His new album is called Welcome Home. It is his 20th album uh, total. Alan, I was listening to it, and it's it's a lovely album. It really is. And it, there's a lot on Thank it that, that feels like stuff, you know, feel has the spirit of what you've heard before. And yet, in some ways, it's also very intimate. And that was, that was an interesting, I thought that was an interesting choice. It is. It's terrifying, to be honest with you, for a fellow like me who's used to, you know, singing party songs all the time and songs of celebration. And I mean, I, I always joke that I've I've been accused of and and guilty of writing songs for the concert more than the album. You know, like right. like I've literally written songs with lyrics in them for the audience to sing back to me. You know, like back lyrics. Right. <laughs> that's how much I love doing that. You know, and I think most songwriters probably write songs about things that move them the most, you know, and, and playing live and getting, having nights of celebration and that kind of thing is it's still my favorite thing to do. And the kind of the most natural thing for me to write about. And on this record, of course, there's a bunch of things on there that, that I'm not used to writing about. And I probably wouldn't ever have written about before, but you know, like there's a song on there called yours and mine. That's about my son. Yeah coming of age, you know, and, and he's about to turn 18 and how satisfying and terrifying that is, you know, and that's, that's not something I would have written about, of course, before. And then, you know, there's a song on there called hard old hands. That's really about, it's kind of a confessional about me and sort of my own, you know, anxieties and, and insecurities about my own abilities or lack of abilities, the same as anybody would have, you know, those are not things that are, that come easy for me 
to talk about publicly, much less sing about publicly. But I just, you know, on the encouragement of um, my band and, and my friends, it's like, Alan, you know, it's okay if you, uh, they say, I know you're used to shouting, but if you whisper something, I think you've earned, <laughs> I think your your fans like you enough that they'll probably lean in and listen. Yeah. I mean, I don't want listeners to think there aren't a whole bunch of really, you know, great party songs on the record because yeah. there are. But I, I was really struck. I mean, you did a remake of How Did We Get From Saying I Love You, which is a beautiful song that I think you wrote when you Isn't were it? Yeah, I love a really young man. I, I, I wrote that song. I was still a teenager when I started mm-hmm. writing. And I finished it for Great Big C in, uh, in 1994 or something. like. And, and uh, it's really about the first sort of breakup that I ever had that felt like an adult breakup, you know, like when you break up when, when teenagers and grade 10 or whatever, you know, everyone goes out with everyone or whatever. And then it doesn't seem to matter who's going out with who. And then, and then, but I remember in my late teens having a relationship and, and we met up on the bridge in Petty Harbor and we just talked about the weather. And I thought, what just happened? Like, and it was a very moving kind of coming of age moment where I realized that that things in your adult life are not the same as things are in your in your young life and and uh, and so I you know I was compelled to write a song about it and then one of those odd things of course about Great Big C you know was that we almost we didn't do a lot of ballads <laughs> no <laughs> you know uh, and the few that we did often Sean sang them you know because Sean McCann I mean he's such a beautiful ballad singer and and uh so I almost never got to sing ballads in Great Big Sea. And so I, I loved that song. And I, and I knew that the beautiful, beautiful band would do a brilliant version of it with Kendall sort of playing the role as, of the female voice in it. And it's just, it's, it's just lovely. I just love it. It is. I mean, for a 17, 18-year-old, how did we get from saying I love you to I'll see you around someday is a pretty good, it's a pretty good line. It is. I mean, it's uh, as true, so- it's as, true at, at, at 50 as it would be at 20, I think. Yeah, so it really, really was one of those... You know, it doesn't happen to me very often in my life where I have a kind of like a where I'm sort of drawn by inspiration to write something down quickly and finish it. And, and I often write songs because I need songs, you know, and that's <laughs> I'm not sitting around here waiting for the lightning bolt to start writing songs or I'll never, you know, I'll have written six in my whole life. You know? right. And um, that, but that was undeniably one of them. Yeah, the enemy of per- the enemy of good is perfection, right? I mean, in that sense, is uh, mm. I, I was really taken by all for a song too, because I, I was just listening to yeah. it and thought, you know, it could be about many things. It struck me as it was a little bit about the band, right? I mean, I, I didn't know, I don't know. Oh, yeah, it's a true, love letter, but it's a love letter to the band, right? About about getting on yeah. and sort of going to Halifax and going to Boston, and all yeah. the things you did together, and why you did it. It was. It's just a love letter to you know the the band. I wrote it with a, a guy named Ketch, who's the who's the lead singer in a band called the old Crow medicine show. And we, we started talking about how we, we love how much we owe, you know, to the, the, the people in our bands that have lifted us for so long. And, 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 and so that was sort of how the, the, the origin of the chorus of the song started. But then I sort of ran with the verses because I was, was sort of on my record. So it really tells the early story of Craping Sea of how, we left St. John's and and had our eyes kind of wide open. And then somewhere along the way, we realized how hard this was going to be. But we did it anyway. You know, it's really just a love letter to, you know, the five or six people who sat in that van 
for the you know the first decade or so as we tried to figure out how to do this really almost impossible thing of being a touring band that lives on an island out in the middle of the ocean. Uh, just just the logistics of it right like just the logistics of, of getting off the island and, and then heading out i mean it's a long you're a long way from halifax never mind montreal toronto winnipeg oh yeah yeah it's two days travel to get to halifax in the van yeah because you're not flying first oh, yeah. class at this point oh yeah yeah good luck yeah yeah. I, I mean, it's, and it's tough for, I mean, that a lot of bands don't survive that. And one of the reasons a lot of talented bands don't make it is because they can't survive that part of it, that part of the ordeal, the climb and, and just the grueling nature of it, no matter how much you love it. Yeah, it's true. And, and there's nowhere, I wrote about this in one of my books. There's, there's nowhere that's more inaccessible to be a touring band than St. John's Newfoundland. Like right. in Canada, like it's just, you know, like I always talk about, you know, you could draw like a, a 10-hour driving circle around, say, London, Ontario. And how many cities can a band from London, Ontario drive to in 10 hours that have more than, say, 20,000 people? Yeah. For a band from London, Ontario, there's probably dozens, probably hundreds. I mean, you're in the, you're almost into Manhattan by then. For the band from Newfoundland, from St. John's, the amount of towns in that 10-hour driving circle with more than 20,000 people is zero. Of course, yeah. Other than that's why so many great bands never leave. I mean, I'm, wow. you know, some some great bands never never leave the island. And if you want to do, and I keep going, you know, not to make too much of a point of it, yeah. but add another five hours to it, the answer is still zero. Right. Add another five hours to it, the answer is still zero. You're not in yeah. Sydney yet. <laughs> no. no, and no wonder the song is kind of mournful about looking back. Like you're, it feels like you're you're going off to war or something in in the all for a song because it really is about you know it's about a long journey not just a not just sort of your first tour of northern ontario if you grew up in toronto two days ago i was on the west coast of vancouver island playing a concert when i was stood on the where i was in the west coast of vancouver island i'm further away from my house than moscow (laughs) yeah than you would be from moscow and st john's yeah yeah Yeah. moscow is closer to st john's than the west coast of vancouver island Alan Doyle is with us this hour. He's talking about his new album, his 20th, including uh, albums with Great Big C called Welcome Home. He's on tour as well. He's in Trail and Cranbrook. He's going to be in Edmonton, Calgary, Regina, Saskatoon, uh, Winnipeg, all coming up in the next couple of weeks. He's on a, I think Alan was a 43, I counted, I think it was about 43 or 44 gigs in in just about a little over three months. That's a pretty busy schedule, isn't it? Yeah, it's what we normally do, you know, and it's sort of the, the again, back to being a band from a coast, an island in the middle of the ocean. When, when you assemble to go tour, you kind of got to do it for a while. You can't go home on Mondays, you know, it's just too far. And so we we, we always set up this thing where we go out for three or four weeks. We do six in a row and we take a day off. We do six in a row, take a day off. And then, and then we, luckily we've built up this touring world so that if you do tours that are 26 or 27 gigs a tour a leg will say well it usually takes five or six of them to get to all the places that will have us right. so it really builds up about a two-year touring cycle which is and then you can do another record and do it again it's pretty great right and, and you like i mean you you've i've heard you say you don't like a blank you don't like blanks on the calendar right like that's not you're, that you're not happy when you see blanks on the calendar and nowhere to play and nothing to do that's terrifying for me like the, right. the pandemic hit and i was just like oh my god like what what Oh my God. I started building decks in our backyard, just like <laughs> more than, more and I wrote, than one. I literally wrote a book in six weeks, like <laughs> during the pandemic. And yeah, um, uh, yeah like I, I, do, I do love 
I, I love having dates on the calendar to, to go play and have know that that's coming up. And I also love bringing people along. You know, I love that. I love, I know how special touring is for musicians, especially at, a, you know, at our level, almost nobody gets to do it. And I know how special it is. And one of the cool things about being, uh, you know, in the position that I'm in is I get to take people who've always wanted to do this, you know, either, right. I mean, about musicians or crew or anybody, you know, it's just like who've dreamed of being in this, you know, this lifestyle, you know, and so it's it's awesome. It's great. Yeah, I was I was I was looking back at some of the stuff you've done recently, and I was it, it just happened that I was reading that uh, Pink Houses. It's the 40th anniversary of Pink Houses by John Cougar Mellencamp, peaking on Billboard, which was one of my favorite songs as a kid. And you did this incredible version of Paper and Fire uh, on your last yeah. EP, and it just got me back to thinking about. I mean, I've heard you talk about. And you talked about it off the top, playing in pubs, learning why those hits are hits, like learning why a song resonates is probably the most valuable lesson you can get as a young musician, because you start to understand the sort of that strange, whatever that magic is, that strange magic of of a record that resonates. Yeah, I mean, it it sort of starts with my sort of respect I have for pub musicians and cover bands and and they got a lot of people roll their eyes at that kind of thing especially what drives me cracked you know mm-hmm. that, that people think being a pub band is a good pub band is easy you think about like the way traditional music lives in the critical world sometimes compared to like you know an irish bar versus a jazz bar right it's kind of just given you know it's no big deal that there's someone in the corner burning the place to the ground with an accordion and a whistle and a and a fiddle for six hours in a row Whereas, you know, someone is heralded for playing in a jazz band for 90 minutes, you know, and like, and I was like, do you know how hard that is? Like, do you know how hard it is to learn six hours of material? Yeah. <laughs> in, in, like, in, and, and of course, I did it for so long, right? Like, I, I was the guy in the corner down on George Street singing the Eagles or singing Stan Rogers or singing, you know, Newfoundland traditional music or Irish songs or whatever the night wants done. And I have a tremendous amount of respect for it. And in retrospect, the thing I'll I, I, I always tell people who are doing that when perhaps in their younger lives is like, look, this is you're still playing music. You're still you're playing. And if you're lucky, you're playing great music. These are great songs again. And what, so why are they great? What, what 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 do those songs have that got them onto your set list at the chicken wing bar tonight? You know, <laughs> yeah. like that's there's a value. Them, in that. Yeah. What got them up on the floor tonight? Right. Yeah. Because you're right, the playing in front of a distracted audience who yeah, it's great. might yeah is is I'm sure both incredibly difficult, but also what what a what a what a rite of what a rite of passage that must be, and just figuring out how to just how to keep it together and how to be how to be good, right? It's part of my praise for pub bands, especially trad bands, over the years in like Celtic pubs and stuff. Is like it's like if you want to get people's attention in an Irish or Celtic pub or a Newfoundland pub, like you gotta be awesome. Like the, do you know how good that place is without you? It's already brilliant. You know, <laughs> like it's, yeah. it's how, they, they like, still pour the beer. Right? <laughs> yeah, It's already spectacular, you know, <laughs> like, so, and I actually remember when great big C started playing theaters and, you know, I, 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 I was terrified first because I just I immediately realized when I walked out on stage in a theater, it's like, Oh my God, they're already looking at us. Right. They're all seated. Half of the things I have learned over the last four years are no good to me anymore. I don't I don't need I, they, I don't need to get their attention. I have their attention. Like like it's like and it's like 
whoa, I got to go relearn how to do this. <laughs> yeah. Did you have to, I mean, you would have to kind of change the show. I mean, I've seen shows in theaters. I've seen people in theaters that oh, I yeah. probably should have seen in bars, right? I think that's, a, sometimes you sit there thinking, well, I'm, it's beautiful in here, but I wish we were at a pub or wish we were somewhere smaller. Right? And vice versa. Yeah, I'm and, sure. And, you know, and and if you're, again, because of the way the, the, the population of Canada is spread out and the way the calendar of the year works, it's extremely difficult to be a, continuous touring band in Canada unless you can play both you kind of got to you kind of got to have a set that works in the pub you got to have a set that works in the beer garden you got to have a set that works in a theater and you got to have a set that works you know on bud stage and and that's tricky that's hard you know and um but if you really want to get have a life or career you kind of got to work on having all that ready to go Alan Doyle is with us this half hour, uh, former lead singer, of course, of Great Big C for many, many years, and now on a very successful solo career. His 20th album overall, if you include the Great Big C records, is called Welcome Home. There's a lot of, uh, he's he's referred to, it's both a, a little bit of a whisper and a little bit of yell. There's there's some party music on there, and there's some more intimate stuff on there as well, which is all which is all great. Uh, just in terms of, you, when you look back now, I mean, yeah, I think it was when Gordon Lightfoot passed away and we did lots of interviews with people like Tom Cochran and so on, who used to say, you know, Gordon just wanted to play music. Like he didn't, he didn't, he was never going to retire. He didn't want to retire. He loved what he did. And I get the idea that sometimes some people just love this so much that they don't see it as, as work. It's just sort of what you do. Yeah. And if you didn't do it, you know, you'd be, you'd be a, a lot less happy for it. Willie Nelson says, retire from what? <laughs> right. <laughs> And I said, oh, play golf, right? I mean, I don't know. What? Like, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I can only speak for myself. And, and I didn't get in a band because I wanted to have the biggest hit in the world and then go retire to a villa in Spain or something. You know, I got in the music business because I wanted to play music for my life. That's what I want to do. That's, you know, and I, I don't I, I, I don't want to do it till I'm 55. That's in a couple of weeks. <laughs> That's right. Wow. So you're on tour during your birthday. You're on tour for your birthday. Once again, no doubt. Once again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's always the way, but that's that's the great blessing of it, right? That you know you you end up having you know I'm surrounded by this incredible band with Kendall playing fiddle and Corey playing guitar and Todd and Shahab and Chris and you know we we have this great night where we play songs from my records and we play a bunch of the songs from the Great Big C catalog and from the Newfoundland traditional music catalog and the a fun cover or two. Like it's just always a it's always a different night and it's always a a, a night where I always tell that. It's it's a thing that people do. It's not it's not what you see. Like if, if you if you're coming just to look, it's probably not the night for you. If you want to come be involved in a great night out, then check it out. Yeah, yeah, that's the and it's interesting because when I look back, of course, I remember, remember that you know I, there were there was a bad, there was a great sort of the origins of Great Big C predated you, and then you got involved with them as well. And it's just been such a remarkable. Yeah. It must be sometimes strange. It must have all gone by in a. I mean, I don't know if this to be true. Because in my case, it feels like it has, but it must have all gone by and it feels like it's gone by in a flash, right? Well, the passage of time when you're in a touring band for a living is is bizarre. I mean, literally, there are, it, there's an odd time continuum that just warps your sense of it. And, and there are things that happened 30 years ago that feel like a month ago. <laughs> and there are things that happened the day before yesterday that feel like 30 years ago. Like you can't believe it was like, you remember that time we were in Kelowna? I literally said it yesterday. We we're driving on the bus to Cranberry. Right. Remember that time we were in Kelowna and we got Mexican food? That was Tuesday. 
<laughs> it feels like 10 years ago. <laughs> and meanwhile, getting on stage at some like, you know, the University of Windsor in 1996 is it feels like it was last week. Yeah, it's a, it's bizarre because like it's one of the reasons I don't I don't spend a lot of time looking back, you know, and, and perhaps that's to a fault. I don't know, but I don't I don't like it because there is so much behind me at this point that it's in this lucky, lucky, lucky life that I've been given that I'm afraid if I look too closely, I'll say, well, that's enough, surely. I mean, that's a life and a half already. <laughs> yeah. Where is that villa in Spain? But, you, but it, uh, interesting enough, I suppose we should we should just end on Welcome Home. Fact is, on this album, if you, I mean, I listened to the whole thing. The lyrics are on your website, by the way, if people are interested. Uh, it's always nice to go read the lyrics as well. Uh, you do do a little looking back, and I can see why that might be, I, I wouldn't say it would be uncomfortable, but it would be, be out of your comfort zone. Not what I'm not what I'm used to. Yeah. And like you say, the, it's kind of a more thing I do in private than in public. And, you know, I, like I just wanted to show people a couple of more shades of of myself, I suppose, on this record. And and I would tell you that I finally felt comfortable doing it, but that would be a lie. I, you know, I'm kind of terrified to do it, to be honest with you. But, the, you know, I, I, as I get a bit older, I realize that. You know, if, if you're not nervous and terrified when you're putting something out there, then you, you're probably not putting out the right thing. Yeah. And, and how have the song, how have the new, how's the new record been received live? Is it, uh, are people liking it? Oh, great. Yeah, it's great yeah. fun because, you know, there's, it does have a few barn burners that, that people love to hear, but it also has a couple of tender moments that, you know, we're playing mostly theaters on this tour. So, you know, people love to have a, a sit in a comfy chair and listen to, you know, an old guy confessed a few things, and I'm glad, happy to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and whatever happened to the girl on in Petty Harbor, the, the the one, the small talk? Did you ever know? Did you ever find it? I suppose you must know. I mean, it's not a big place. Oh, of course, yeah. I think I might. I think she's coming to the show in Edmonton. <laughs> oh, ah, that's the see. Everywhere you go, you're going to get a little piece of the past is going to show up in the audience there. I'm sure you look out and see familiar faces all the time. Fantastic. Yeah, we do. And that's great. I love it. And so well, again, like one of the many blessings of my life is that I seem, I seem to be, uh, you know, I still, I get to see everybody all the time, you know, and that's a lovely thing. Well, Alan, thank you so much for your time. Congratulations on the new record. Good luck on the tour. And it's been, it's been lovely speaking to you. Thanks for everything. Cheers. Biggest Russian must know here is just my first time to Alaska. Just dropping into giant mountains. It was so steep. When we came halfway down the mountain, we were just in this little ant in the middle of this big face. And uh, if he hit a little bump to do an air, he would just drift so far down because it was really steep. That is the voice of the late Craig Kelly, who, if you don't know who he is, and I didn't know much about him, is one of the world's most famous snowboarders. He was a trailblazer in snowboarding. He sort of started off as one of the first world champions as the sport was just finding its feet before it become explode into the X Games, now the Winter Olympics. It's really become an incredibly popular sport. Um, it's been more than 20, 20 years now since uh, since Kelly, someone often called the Michael Jordan of snowboarding, was killed in an avalanche near Revelstoke, B.C. Uh, he was just 36. He had a young daughter. Uh, he and his partner were living in NBC. Um, he was born and raised in Washington State, actually. And again, while he may not be a familiar name, he be, was, became the four-time world champion and three-time U.S. Open champion in snowboarding. Uh, his style and technique, he literally glides. You watch videos of him even from back in the 90s, and he just glides across the snow. It's like watching a surfer 
uh, you know, catching a perfect wave on the ocean. There's just a way about him. It's it looks effortless, right? Which of course is the greatest compliment to anyone doing anything athletic, is that it looks like they're barely doing anything at all. He had left competitive snowboarding uh, to focus on free riding. He already had countless first ascents to his name from Alaska to here to the U.S., uh, all while helping the snowboard company Burton develop the first split board. And before his death, he was working to become the first fully certified snowboarding mountain guide and avalanche expert. In, in, in other words, uh, a lot of sort of that that free riding was and, and going up into more remote areas, helicopter skiing and so on, was always about the skiers, never much about the snowboarders. And he wanted to change that. And But to do so, he had immense respect for the mountains, immense respect for everything around him. He, he was sort of wanted to be part of it. And so he decided that he needed to learn more about it. On January 20th, uh, 2003. He wasn't actually working at this point, um, but he was part of a group of, of many that were hit by an avalanche. Um, they'd been helicoptered to a remote lodge on the Selkirk Range in BC. Uh, and his life, his legacy, and questions about that avalanche that killed him are all part of a new book by best-selling author Eric Blem, whose previous books include Last Season and Fearless. He knew Craig Kelly, and the new book is called The Darkest White, A Mountain Legend and the Avalanche That Took Him. I'm looking back and I, it was unbelievable. It was impossible. You know, Craig was so smart and he was cautious as well. He was the guy who would always be there. When this all started, I was in a lift line and this kid texted me, he looked down and he just said, total all sincerity, like, who's Craig Kelly? Snowboarding is just living to me. It's not really play, it's not work, it's just I'm fine living. I, I couldn't believe there was anybody on the planet that hadn't heard Craig Kelly. Defending overall world champion by Craig Kelly. You know, and he won world championship after world championship. And then he said, I just want a free ride. When you're traveling in avalanche terrain, you want to limit how many people are exposed. There were magazine articles and there were newspaper articles. There was a coroner's report. There was an independent investigation. And while they asked a lot of tough questions, it never really explained why this giant group of people were caught. That is actually the voice of Eric Blem in the trailer for his latest book called The Darkest White, A Mountain Legend and the Avalanche That Took Him. And he joins me now. Eric, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. This is such a fascinating story. First of all, I mean, it happened 20 years ago now. I was reading some of the articles written on the 20th anniversary. But this was a personal project for you. You knew Craig. I did know Craig. I was a, an editor of a Transworld Snowboarding magazine back in the 90s when, you know, snowboarding was really taking off. I went to the memorial service. I wrote a couple tribute stories to him. And 15 years later, I mean, he was he was a, a god to our generation of snowboarders. He was the Sean White of snowboarding at that time. Yeah. Everybody who snowboarded knew who Craig Kelly was. Um, he was like the Michael Jordan. The Michael um, Jordan, that's the one that really stood out to me because that is high praise indeed. And yeah, no, that's absolutely who he was. And the way this book came together and what gave me the, uh, you know, finally made me want to write it. 15 years after his passing, I was at a lift in a lift line and I had uh, these stickers that were made up after Craig passed away that said, Craig Kelly is my co-pilot. And they were right. just 
plastered around the world. And I kept it on. I've had it on, you know, a few different boards. And this kid who was a snowboarder, and he looked like the type of kid who should know, you know, and I say kid, we're talking somewhere in the 20s. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> he looks over at my board. Have, yeah, somewhere between ground. 14 and 25. Yeah. But yeah. he looked down at my the sticker on my board in the lift line, and, you know, as you're scooting forward. And he just said, who's Craig Kelly? And I just, I couldn't believe it. It would be like somebody walking up to a pickup basketball game at a basketball court and some kid or myself has a Michael Jordan jersey on and someone looking at you and say, who's Michael Jordan? Yeah, I mean, you feel like you're in a time warp and like, is this, could this be for real? And so that is when I thought, you know what, Craig, um, the new generation, the current generation doesn't know who Craig was. And he was such a special, he was the first true professional snowboarder. He was the first international superstar. And uh, he was a, a, a hero of mine. I went back home after that uh, trip and I went to my storage unit and I found this box buried in the back corner that just said Craig on it. And it had all the old articles and the newspaper reports, the um, the coroner's report, the investigation of the avalanche that killed him. And I just thought, you know, this is time. I'm going to dig back into the layers and tell the story. So I approached the family and... And here we are five years later, five years, hundreds of people interviewed, 300 plus hours of interviews and um, just to kind of share Craig with the world. That's my yeah. goal. And also, as I looked through the box, I realized there were so many questions about that avalanche. It was a very polarizing topic. You know, the same period of time when the, the students were killed, seven days, seven students just 10 days later. Um, at Rogers Pass. So it was considered the deadliest fortnight in backcountry skiing and snowboarding history at the time. Yeah, it came up again recently because last year was was particularly deadly as well. So and, and all of a sudden that that summer, that, that year, that winter of 2003 was being revisited again. I think if you look at the title, you might be mistaken into, into thinking that this is a lot about how Craig died. Whereas a lot of the book is about how he lived. And I think if you don't know much about him, what's so fascinating, and perhaps the reason people don't know much about him, is that he essentially pioneered the sport just as it was getting he pioneered it into popularity and then went off and did something different and i mean it says so much about i think the craig that you knew that he all of a sudden he was always kind of just you know charting his own path yeah well he started in the very beginning you had to do everything if you're a professional athlete and it also even to jump back a little bit more he was a chemical engineering student at the university of washington and he was two quarters shy of graduating with a great degree and a job to go to. And he thought, you know, I'm going to try and make another pro snowboarder. I mean, as an athlete in a sport that really didn't even exist yet. So from there, he jumped. We're even welcome on ski. I mean, they weren't even welcome on ski hills, right? I mean, no one uh, wanted to see them or hear of them. No, 1988 Time Magazine voted it the worst new sport. Crazy how it was, you know, at that period. But he was such a great ambassador. He was a person who his snowboarding itself was so beautiful that they, he was that person a skier would look at and say, so that's what you can do on one of those things. Right. And, and he turned around and he did all he needed to do to become a four-time world champion, uh, multiple-time individual champion in different disciplines like moguls, obstacle course, the half pipe, of course, uh, giant slalom, slalom, downhill. But then he walked away from it all. He got to a point where he kind of remembered that feeling he got in the early days of snowboarding, just hiking up, riding powder, and free riding was when that term was, you know, coming into vogue. You know, that no one really knows who came up with that term, but that was what he was doing. And Craig Kelly, some would argue, did it better than anybody. At the time, if you consider money now versus then, he made probably close to a million dollars at his, um, a million dollars in a year, strictly from snowboarding. About 200,000 of that 
and we're talking U.S. dollars, would have been from events, contest winnings, because his sponsor would double that. And so that was a large chunk of change that he just walked away from competition and said, I'm, I'm just going to free ride. Right. And also developed, I mean, I mean, I think what comes out in your book so much is not just his his ability, but his respect, his respect for the hill, for the snow, for all of it. He had this incredible connection to it, I think, comes out a lot. And he was studying to be the first snowboarding guide at that point, right? Mountain guide, I think, is the correct term. Uh, I mean, he was always sort of looking at how he was going to blaze the next trail. He did. He knew when to stop him. I mean, Jake Burton Carpenter said that at one point, I don't know if Craig is predicting the future or creating the future, right. but people followed him. And then this you know, thing called the split board came into being. You know, a lot of people were making them uh, on their own, sawing their boards down the center, adding the climbing skins, climbing the mountains in that Nordic fashion, uh, but then also um, riding down as a surfer, as a snow surfer. And again, nobody did it more beautifully than Craig. And that kind of became his uh, his mantra at that point, and his mission was to perfect this splitboarding and to become a mountain guide. Because so many mountain guides were guiding snowboarders, but they were all doing it on skis. And there was a little bit of that, I won't want to say a rift, but there was an old school mentality where anything from the old school European guides to even the Canadian guides at the time, that whole generation of guides thought, snowboarders can't do what we can do. We have better mobility and this and that. And Craig Kelly was the one that said, no, I'm not going to take no for an answer. I want to get an opportunity to do it. And um, his mentor, John Buffery, who was already a certified Alpine guide with the ACMG and, uh, you know, an examiner, he went to bat for him. Colin Zacharias was like the head of the technical committee at the organization. And these people were big time in that world. And they just said, let's give Craig a chance. If he can do what the other guides can do on this split board, why shouldn't he be guiding so much of the book, by the way, I mean, it, it, it's not particularly surprising, but a lot of the book is focused on BC, on British Columbia, which if you're a Canadian reader is interesting because you'll notice, you'll recognize a lot of the names, even some of the names of the people that took his class. Ross Rebliati shows up at one point in it. Uh, I mean, there's a big Canadian connection. Of course, as you know, Canadians do like it when they get to read about themselves as well. Sheesh, it's like 50-50, you know, you talk yeah. about as far as the people who I interviewed and, um, you know, Craig was big into mentors. He understood the benefits of having mentors in life. And he considered a lot of his friends mentors in different areas of his life and snowboarding. And, you know, he was trying to figure out the best way to get through this very vigorous ACMG certification process so he could pass that ultimate exam as quickly as possible. And so he was searching for uh, the right mentor. And through his research, that led him to Selkirk Mountain Experience and Rudy Beglinger, who several people, I mean, I interviewed across the board, and he's a very polarizing figure. Mm -hmm. Anybody doubted or would, would deny that his terrain was very uh, technical and varied and mixed with everything from glacier to tree lines. And it was a perfect place to go and train for Craig to get ready for this exam that he was going to take. Eric Blem is with us this half hour. You may remember him from his books, The Last Season and Fearless. His latest is called The Darkest White, A Mountain Legend and the Avalanche That Took Him. It is about Craig Kelly, who is really considered to be the trailblazer uh, amongst snow in snowboarding. He kind of pioneered and revolutionized the sport, making it what it is today in many ways. And before it, it exploded into popularity, you know, when most of us would have seen it competitively in the Olympics and so on, he was already gone. He had retired to go off and free ride, do his own thing, essentially. And it was in doing that uh, it, that he was killed in an avalanche in B.C., 
in January of 2003 at at the time. This is obviously you've dug into this incident quite a bit, Eric. And I know it's I mean, looking back over the reports, there's been different books written about it. There's sort of been blame assigned. People have called it a freak accident. You thought it was important, though, to try to go back and figure out some of the different people that were there and what they had to say about what happened that day. Yeah, there there were things that just never added up. I mean, I read the magazine articles. There was an independent investigation put on by one of the families of uh, the victims, uh, the coroner's report. There were still questions, and it just never really added up, even to a lot of the survivors. As I began reaching out to survivors from this event, they just, you know, there were certain things, like why were 21 people taken by this one particular avalanche? You know, I just wanted to tell the whole story for Craig because Craig, during his training, he was a very empathetic learner. He would read these reports of other people who were killed in avalanches. And, you know, a lot of people will look at an avalanche and they'll say, what in the hell were they doing there? What were they thinking? Right. And Craig was a very, you know, it was that diplomat in him, I think, but also the engineer in him who loved to reverse engineer any situation. And so by looking at his own, I was privy to his own notes from his avalanche classes, his uh, diary and his own individual avalanche uh, guidebooks. And he just really wanted to understand. He didn't necessarily want to cast blame himself, but he also believed in accountability and his own decisions. And so putting that all together, I just knew the best way you could honor Craig and all those who were killed with him on that day, seven people total, is to get tell the truth, you know, and people can learn from that. And things were withheld over the years. And I was, uh, there were some things that were pretty shocking as I uncovered them, like, wow, that changes everything. That That's not what I heard about in the newspaper. Yeah, w- without giving everything away, because obviously you'd say people should read this for themselves. What are some of the, where, what are some of the areas where you found inconsistencies? Um, well, you know, every every story has multiple points of view but nobody ever had really talked to everybody. And, um, you know, Ken Wiley, the guide, he wrote his own memoir, uh, a pretty scathing account of Rudy Beglinger, the lead mm-hmm. guide. Um, and, um, but it was his perspective. And then, you know, Rudy would turn around and say, oh, what's in here? That's that's not true. These are lies. And I just really hope that they would just be forthright and just say, hey, I want to reconstruct this thing. It's been 20 years. Tell me what happened. And, I, one thing I noticed in certain accounts was a lot of the trouble occurred without giving away when, when the radio was involved, honestly. Mm-hmm. So I drilled down into that and tried to understand the human factors because in every avalanche, everybody will say you can, there's a, there's no science, which is never exact, but there's always a human factor as well. And I just wanted to re reconstruct the entire thing. And also the, the heroic rescue um, effort, you know, I wanted people to understand what it really is like you know you hear so-and-so was killed in avalanche but they don't really understand what it's like to be with what rudy and all these seven were faced with when they were at the top of this run the mountain had exploded basically and they looked down where these beautiful tracks had been and it was an empty void it was a white landscape there was no living souls in this whole rubble field and they had you know moments to act and did 13, yeah 13 did. people beneath the beneath the snow um with only seven people and only one of them was a trained guide um it was chaos in a word chaos and people opened up to tell me those moments and i wanted to just reconstruct it in a way that people would you know appreciate what they went through the efforts they did to save who they were able to save but also so i think people can um kind of think twice before they decide to drop in on a certain line or or whatever is it worth yeah. 
it, it, it was words like the woomph that you mentioned, the sort of the sound and then the cement likeness of it, which I don't think you often, we always associate, even Canadians associate snow with being, especially powder, with being soft and malleable. And it isn't. It's it's like a, it's rock hard, right? I, I hadn't even thought of that until I was reading through some of the descriptions. Uh, what would you like? Ultimately, I mean, this is a tribute. This is a tribute to Craig in some ways, the way he lived and 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 unfortunately the way he passed. And he's left he's left behind a legacy too. There are still things done in his name that have benefited, you know, now more than more than a generation of young snowboarders out there. Yeah, well, and um, his greatest legacy is um, some people will say was is his daughter Olivia. You know, who was just not even two years old when he passed. Mm-hmm. So I think that he's known for his beautiful writing, but also the fact that he was, what's what's probably most tragic is he was on the mountain. A lot of people throw out, oh, th- thrill seekers and th- this and that. He was there to learn how to be safer. And I think it's important to understand no matter how much you know and how much you learn and how smart you are and cautious, which Craig was being a new father, nature has the upper hand. And I wanted to, you know, kind of wrap that all together with the history of snowboarding and Craig's part in it. And so it is a celebration of Craig's life. But you can't celebrate an entire life unless you tell the whole life. And in this case, it includes his death. But by re- cross, by reverse engineering that avalanche, that honors Craig and all of them that day because there are still lessons to be learned. People will be intrigued to pick up the book and they're going to learn some things about avalanches, but they're going to come to love Craig Kelly. Eric, I appreciate your time. Good luck. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Oh, you You cut me off! Oh, yeah, you! Dad, that's an ambulance. Oh, right. Ambulance! Take it so big with your siren and your letters on backwards! Here we are, kid. The zoo. Well, that's great, Dad, except you were supposed to drive us to the newspaper. Ah, bad driving. The Simpsons, there's always something in The Simpsons for you to hang on to. If there's one place where people tend to see the worst in others and the best in themselves or the best in ourselves, it's on the road. Across the country, about 86% of people surveyed rate themselves as average or above average drivers, 86%. 43% of Canadians believe they are above average drivers. You know how many people believe they are below average? 1%. 1% admit to being below average drivers. The other 12%, they don't drive. So 86% of people more or less say, you know what? We're pretty good. 1% say, well, I'm not great at all. And 12% don't drive. So it just can't be true. I mean, if you drive every day, I, I don't drive to work every day. I walk a lot of the time. But, wow, you know, you see what you see out there. The most anger-inducing driving habits, by the way, uh, out there, because this is what the survey is all about. It's a survey about road rage, by the way. Uh, the most anger-inducing habits of other drivers, by the way. Almost all of these involve other drivers. Rarely do we get upset about things like gridlock or uh, radar speed cams, right? What we get upset about is people blowing through stop signs and red lights, not signaling lane changes, tailgaters, cutting people off, drivers talking on their cell phones. That's a big one now. It's funny, you know, 15 years ago, we didn't really talk about it much. And now people on their phones while driving is one of those things that absolutely infuriates people and drivers speeding up when you try to pass them and so on and so forth. Um, One of the funny things about this survey is that nearly two thirds of Canadian drivers admit to sometimes doing one of those anger inducing things. And those above average drivers 
they're more likely to admit doing one of them, 68%. So there's all kinds of contradictions when it comes to our own ideas about how we drive. Um, and that's all according, again, to this new road rage index done by Polaris Strategic Insights. And we thought we'd dig into it a little bit more. Uh, we'll also talk a bit more about the rage index because, interestingly enough, there is one category in their uh, sort of quarterly rage index that's come down a bit, which may be surprising to cover all of this. Dan Arnold is Polaris Strategic Insights Chief Strategy Officer, and he joins me now. Dan, welcome back. Thank you. I'm, as always, happy, not angry to be here. Good, good, because, yeah, we're not, we're, well, certainly not very happy on the roads. I think this is one of those surveys that that brings maybe few surprises, but it's always interesting to see it in numbers. How can so many, so few people think they're below average drivers? One percent. One percent. Yeah, that's that's just human nature, I guess. Uh, and I kind of did expect there would be a, a bit of an overstating of people's abilities on that question, which is why we asked it, um, because humans in all facts of life tend to think they're better than they are. That's why you think you can carry uh, five bags and then you pull at your back afterwards. And, you know, the same thing here, we have 43% of Canadians who think they're above average drivers, only 1% who think they are below average drivers. Um, maybe not surprising, but, you know, I think that's a good, you know, there's a point to this and that if everyone thinks they are such a good driver that, you know, even on icy conditions, I don't have to slow down because I'm a good driver. Like you get problems that way. Right. So I think, uh, you know, this is something that uh, does have some consequences. Yeah. If you break it down, it's interesting because 43% of Canadians asked think they're above average. 43% think they're at least average, which is pretty good. Uh, 12% don't drive. <laughs> 1% say they're everything else. So in other words, no one thinks they're a bad driver. Barely. No. And then and then when we asked people, you know, which of the following driving habits do you do? People were willing to admit they do a lot of things that you would probably consider, you know, being bad driving <laughs> habits. You have about one in 10 Canadians who say, uh, you know, I don't let people merge in. 8% say they talk on their cell phone while driving. Uh, people admit to tailgating, cutting people off, blowing through red lights even. So, you know, there's a lot more people who are doing things that I would consider bad driving behavior than the number of people who actually admit that they are uh, below average drivers. Yeah. And interestingly enough, the um, the number of people who sort of, we, we can talk about what Canadians thought were the worst offenses on the road, but it was interesting that above average drivers are more prone to committing those, to doing those things than people who consider themselves average drivers even. Yeah. And that, that was interesting. You've got, uh, you know, 52% of above average drivers who say they drive too fast compared to 45% overall. Um, and even on things that you would think would be like pretty clear cut bad driving habits, like talking on the cell phone, tailgating vehicles, cutting people off. Um, yeah, the um, above average drivers, the self-proclaimed above average drivers uh, are more likely to admit doing those things. So um, I guess either they feel because they're such a good driver, they can get away with doing these things and there's no consequences um, or there's a bit of a disconnect there. Yeah, and I, I think this won't come as a surprise to anyone that men were more prone to think of themselves as above average drivers, 53% versus 33% for women. Yeah, on uh, pretty much every poll we do when you ask people to rate themselves, men are always uh, much more confident in their uh, abilities overall. So probably not a surprise there. No. What are, there's always outliers in polls, and I'm sure this is just a statistical thing. But I was surprised to see that uh, the highest, by political affiliation, the highest number of people who admitting to driving too fast voted for the Green Party. That was a good one, even though I'm sure it's a, it's an anomaly, right? Well, I think there actually, actually would be something behind that in the sense that it tended to be young people who admitted to doing a lot of these bad driving behaviors, right. like talking on the cell phone, driving too fast, and their voters just tend to be younger. So I think that's probably the uh, 
the driving factor behind uh, that one there. Yeah, I was just picturing a Volvo full of stickers, you know, sort of, sort of <laughs> ecological stickers going 160. And that was the uh, that was the image that was conjured up. Um, I, I was also the cell phone thing was interesting because you did rate, and we'll talk about the behaviors that most anger people on the roads, and I'm sure they won't come as a huge surprise. Talking on the cell phone is way up there now, but 84 percent I think it finished that, so it's right near the top. But it's the one that incenses people nearly as much as people. I mean, blowing through red lights and stop signs was the top everywhere. Um, but talking on cell phones really angers people now, and that's been a big cultural shift in a pretty short period of time. Yeah, I mean, that's one uh, that really incited those strong emotions, like you said. We asked for all these, does it make you very angry or does it just make you kind of annoyed? And yeah, everything makes people at least somewhat annoyed pretty much that we tested. Um, but if you look at people who say, I'm very angry, Number one was people blowing through stop signs or red lights. That was 54% very angry. Uh, but cell phones was number two at 48%. And nothing else was really close to that. So that seems like it's one where it does uh, incite pretty strong emotions uh, in all parts of the country. Uh, and I think you just you look at somebody out the window and you just sort of say to yourself, like, this guy's going to cause an accident. Uh, they're being irresponsible. Um, and that's what you know gets people angry. It's actually interesting. Like, the things that got people the angriest were generally things where they could like look at one person and say, this person is doing something wrong, where something like gridlock traffic, which you would think would be a big source of anger, was actually pretty low down the list. Because I think people look at that and say, well, nobody's really to blame for that. It's, you know, either we're all to blame or nobody's to blame for this mess we're in right now. Um, but if you see one person doing something that just annoys you, you know, those were the things that tended to get people really angry. Yeah, I, I sort of, while reading through the survey, I thought, you know, if there's one place people tend to see the worst in others and the best in ourselves, it's it's behind the wheel. Yeah, that is uh, that is for uh, that is for sure. Yeah. And you also mentioned stuff like photo radar, which does anger people at times. I mean, there are things that are more broad that you can't actually pin on one person that people do get upset about. But you're right. They were way down there. The stuff that it was sort of other drivers irres acting irresponsibly that angers people the most. I suppose that's not a huge surprise. Yeah, well, the photo radar number was pretty low because there have actually been news stories lately of people you know, vandalizing photo radar signs and painting over them and things like that. Uh, so I did expect it would be a bit higher, but it was only a third of people that were even annoyed um, by that, whereas everything else was over 60%. So that one is quite a bit behind everything else we tested. I, I guess ultimately people say, look, this is there because it's preventing people from wanting, from driving too fast, which is something that does get three quarters of people angry. So I guess people at least see the purpose behind it and maybe then they're a little bit more uh, accepting. Yeah. Given, I mean, Ontario specifically, was it was a bad year. I mean, it's been a bad year in a lot of places for uh, for vehicle accidents and so on. The numbers can't possibly be true then. 86% of people can't possibly be good or better or great on the roads. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, the math, the way math works, it can't be possibly true that everybody's above average and everybody's below average, because then you don't have an average uh, in the middle. So, uh, yeah, clearly people are overstating their abilities. And, you know, and again, the risk in that is that people, they think that the rules don't apply to them, or they think they can get away with things. And, oh, yeah, like, I'm such a good driver that I can read the, I saw one guy reading the newspaper, literally, while he was driving, he had like the newspaper out Jeez. next to him and uh, was driving with one hand. And, you know, I think that's, uh, you know, things like that are going to cause accidents. And maybe people are doing that because they assume that they are such a good driver that they can react if anything goes wrong. Yeah, no kidding. You can't use your phone, but you can read a hard copy of a newspaper. I don't think, I can't remember the last time I saw someone reading. I didn't think copy. anybody read newspapers anymore, <laughs> but at least this guy did. Dan Arnold. 
Arnold is Polaris Chief Strategy Officer. We're talking about their Rage Index. They've been focusing on road rage in February, but they also do the Rage Index generally. Um, Dan, Canadians seem, I mean, I wouldn't call them, a, we're not a happy bunch, but according to your to your research or your survey at least, um, we are happier about one thing, and it may come as a bit of a surprise because we, we talk a lot about doom and gloom in finances, but Canadians seem a little happier with their finances all of a sudden. Yeah, and we've been seeing a a steady increase in anger about finances really over the last you know year and a half, but especially I'd say since about last summer, uh, people just getting increasingly frustrated with their financial situation. That did drop this wave, though. We did see about a six or seven point decline in the number of people who have negative feelings about their financial situation. Um, you know, it's still not a situation where a lot of people are feeling great about it. But you know, when you ask about your personal finances, you know, thirty eight percent either annoyed or angry, 33% either, you know, happy or pleased. So at least it's kind of starting to even out a little bit. And maybe people are looking at 2024 with a little more optimism on that front. Yeah, that's interesting because it is a big shift on the personal finance part. Meantime, if you look at the index, so it sort of has dark red for really angry, uh, sort of a lighter red for angry, and then it drifts into gray for I don't know, and then into the green and light green for happy. And there's very little light green on that chart, Dan, except for in personal finances. Everywhere else, when you know, uh, Canadian government, provincial government, the Canadian economy, the way things are going, everyone's still pretty uh, unhappy out there these days, at least. Yeah, there's still a lot of frustration out there, and I think you know a lot of a lot of governments are certainly feeling this. I mean, you look at uh, what Biden's going through right now. Certainly, the federal government's had a rough go. Uh, we track anger towards provincial governments too, and if you look at the the line for the Quebec government going yeah. back to June, it's just been steadily going up. They used to be Quebecers for the first year that we did this rage index were always the least angry about pretty much everything. Um, but they've been steadily getting angrier and angrier over the last six months. And they're now the angriest in the country about the provincial government and increasingly angry about financial situation uh, as well, too. So I think, you know, it's just a tough situation for anyone who's in government these days because there is a lot of frustration out there. And some of it is driven by uh, economics um, and just financial situations. But maybe if that is starting to improve, Maybe we will see some of that anger towards government go down as the year uh, continues. Yeah, and it's pretty even right across the country, I noticed. I mean, the angriest, uh, according to the Rage Index, are Alberta and Ontario at about 55%. But everywhere else is about, Quebec, I think it was at 48 Everyone else is in the low 50s. So this is a pretty, this this is shared by Canadians from coast to coast. Yeah, the, the thing that unites us is that we're all in a grumpy mood right now, I guess, is maybe the positive <laughs> way to uh, to look at it. But uh, yeah, we're all we all get angry about the same bad drivers and we all get upset with uh, government and we all get upset with inflation. And, um, you know, maybe this is good for national unity then in some respects. Yeah. Women still angrier than men, too, I noticed, which is interesting. Yeah, this is one that um, you know did surprise me because there's obviously a stereotype that men are, are much angry. And if you look at the people who say that they are very angry about the different things we measured, those numbers tend to be a bit higher among men. Um, but I think especially on the economic questions, uh, you know, that question about your own personal financial situation, for example, you know, that's where women tend to be angrier. But the Canadian economy, they tend to be angrier. So I think a lot of women are just struggling uh, with the economic situation that the country's in right now a bit more than men are. And, you know, that's leading to some of that frustration. Yeah, not not to point the uh, point the finger back at ourselves here, but the, no one was particularly happy about stories in the news. If you read one graph that you that you measure for your rage index, the one that's universally always about the angriest and the least happy is stories in the news. I guess there's something in there for us. Yeah, well, I mean, look, it's been a it's been a tough year in terms of actual news stories. We did a poll at the end of 2023 just in terms of what news stories people heard about 
uh, over the last year. And the things people paid the most attention to was like, you know, uh, the war in Ukraine and situation in the Middle East. And I mean, these are not the rise of uh, interest rates. Like, these are not happy news stories. It was like, you know, a few people paid attention to Taylor Swift. But <laughs> beyond that, there weren't a lot of good news stories really over the last little bit. And I think, uh, you know, people as a result of that, it just you get that steady pounding of bad news. And that probably is going to have an impact on your overall psyche. But maybe, maybe, just maybe, at least on the personal financial situation, which everyone really thought of as being, uh, you know, underlying a lot of the a lot of the unhappiness in this country, maybe, just maybe, a little light at the end of the tunnel. I guess we'll see when you update the index next time. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, if that trend continues, I think that will probably bleed into a lot of other areas as well. Two people will still be angry about bad drivers, I think, even if they're feeling yeah. good financially. Uh, but it might make them feel a bit better about uh, other aspects of their life. So that's why we'll keep tracking this uh, going forward. Well, Dan, as always, thank you. Anytime.